0: Now. In this podcast, we celebrate all things related to the variously compiled world of pop. We will also consider the wider world of pop culture and how our favourite compilation albums shaped our lives and now fondly stand as time capsules for our own musical journeys. I hope that you will enjoy sharing in the memories and insights. If you do, please spread the word and let me know your thoughts at www.backtonow.music.blog or on Twitter with myself, Ian, at PopRamble. For this episode, we welcome Michael Mulligan. Shortly before the release of Now17, Michael got a job in his local record shop. Since then, he hasn't looked back, working in all manner of music retail, lending his expertise as a consultant for record labels and mining the archives for overlooked Gems. Michael is also the author responsible for the book, The Story of Now in 100 Artists published to celebrate, not surprisingly, the release of Now 100. And most recently, Michael contributed the insightfully crafted sleeve notes to the soundtrack reissue of Julian Temple's 1986 film adaptation of Absolute Beginners. Michael once made Kylie Minogue laugh and has the photographic evidence to prove it. Though it is entirely possible she was just being polite. Michael, welcome back to Now. Thank you very much and please be polite to me. I, I absolutely will, absolutely will. There's no photographic evidence at the moment, though. <laughs> so thank you so much for joining us. And um, a pleasure. Before we kick off, we have to talk about Absolute Beginners. I
1: remember seeing it at the cinema in 86 when it came out, and it is the proverbial curate's egg. And as you delve into its history, um, there's a lot of reasons for it, not least because Palace Pictures, who produced the film, had problems with some of their other productions at the time and needed to get Absolute Beginners out urgently. Julian Temple, the director, didn't want to hurry it, so they essentially sacked him and gave the final editing over to three other people uh, who cobbled it together. Uh, And I think when you watch it now, that's pretty obvious. But if you watch the music elements, and particularly things like the Ray Davies sequence, Quiet Life, there are some brilliant pop videos in there. So if you look at it as a collection of half a dozen fantastic pop videos, and then there's some great little dance sequences, and then you listen to the soundtrack in isolation, and there's things like Jerry Dammer's first film score piece, this big jazz number with orchestration by the legendary Gil Evans. They're wonderful things. They are really, really wonderful little 80s pop gems. And and, and say what you like about the film, but I
0: think it's a fantastic soundtrack album. It's one of these projects and concepts that has a lot of love from lots and lots of people and regardless of how it obviously did at the box office there's no doubting the musical heritage in there it's fantastic
1: and and the other joy is you know I'm I'm looking at it and thinking I love the Ray Davies track I got the pleasure of speaking to Simon Booth from Working Week when I was writing the sleeve notes Uh, and he also co-wrote the Sharday track and he's got very fond memories of it uh, I got to speak to Ed Tudor Pole of Temple Tudor, and they had nothing but good things to say about it. and And it's wonderful little soundtrack. But then what you find is you put out anything that's highly regarded by the avid Bowie fan base, and that's it. It it has a life of its own, you know. And you start getting these messages from Bowie diehards and telling you how it should be and what it should be, and you know, it's it was it was a. It was very much a labour
0: of love, that's for sure. I obviously knew quite a few of the songs. I bought the DVD, I bought the Blu-ray a couple of years back when it was reissued, and it was fantastic to watch it again. It is, it is such an explosion of colour, um, and it captures that period really, really well, but... The the reissued album is it's just fantastic and it flows incredibly well. Yeah, Clive Langer and Alan Win Stanley. Um, they were supposed to be
1: working on a new Madness album earlier this year. That had to be scrapped. So I had some of their time, and they told me some wonderful tales about meeting David Bowie, recording the title track. But I thought the the most pertinent comment they came up with, it's absolutely the peak of their production career. They think that title track is the best thing they've ever done.
0: And you can hear it, you know, it's just, it's a wonderful thing. There's a fantastic piece in the sleeve notes that you wrote where Bowie brought the demo to the team and said, here's the demo, do with it what you want. And basically the team turned around and said, there's hardly anything we need to do to this.
1: I think they said to me, who records demos at Abbey Road? This is Bowie. So he he hired a studio at Abbey Road to record the demo and got his working band in around him to play on it. But because it was for a soundtrack, they came from the basis that if they do a 12 inch mix, for want of a better phrase, then they'd have all of the orchestral motifs and keys that they could slot in elsewhere in the soundtrack. I'm not a huge fan of early 80s 12 inch singles in particular, because it tends to be the instrumental version and then they do a bit of cut up and dub and then they go into the 7-inch version and you think, really? What was the point? I think you touched on this in episode two with Simon, actually. But when you bring new musicians in and you write new bits just for the 12-inch mix as they did for Absolute Beginners, then it becomes something a bit different and a bit special. And obviously, we're talking about Bowie, The Big Suit Years, and he was very much lost in film and soundtrack world at that time. I really loved 12 inch mix of uh, When the Wind Blows as well I think it's another one that works fantastically well so he did go down some strange little cul-de-sacs every now and then but talent will out and the man had it in in bucket loads didn't they so (laughs) You know, your previous guests have have both said, I grew up in a house surrounded by music. Well, I'm actually the opposite. Other than wonderful Radio 1, there wasn't a great deal of music in our house. I think for the first maybe 10 years of my life, we probably didn't have a record player, or sporadically at best. Um, My father came over from Ireland in the 1940s, and, and he liked Jim Reeves, and he thought that Val Dunican was the funniest thing ever. You know, so a Rafferty's motor car and Paddy McGuinty's goat were as good as the music got in our house. My mother, bless her, liked Mario Lanza and light opera and not much else my elder brother and elder sister are both fair bit older than me so you know wouldn't share their music with me probably perhaps thought that I wouldn't like it. The only pop albums I can recall us having in the house were that first 1966 LP from the Monkees and a music for pleasure album which you can find on the internet with a gaudy pink and orange cover which was called Hot Hits 67 and it bore the legend for 12 and 6 which is 62 and a half pence for all our younger listeners, 12 top hits superbly recorded. Can you tell the difference between these and the original sounds? And as I wasn't overly familiar with the original sounds of Simon Smith and his amazing dancing bear, or I was Kaiser Bill's Batman, I couldn't tell the difference. I, I can remember when the radio was on, a lot of the records I first thought, I want to hear that again, I like that, were well, from artists like the Miracles and the Supremes, and we're talking sort of tail into the 60s, early 70s here, the stacks, Atlantic artists like Otis Redding and Aretha Franklin. You know, at the time, I didn't know that these were soul records or R&B records, but that is undoubtedly the origins of a lasting passion I have for that music. And then the first record I bought for myself was... Alice Cooper Schools Out, Warner Brothers Records, a uh, generic dark green sleeve, number one for three weeks in summer 1972. And I bought it from a shop called Guy Norris Records in the Victoria Shopping Centre top of South End on Sea High Street and obviously at this time 72 the charts have got a healthy dose of glam so you can add to my musical taste the love of Bowie and T-Rex and Sparks I also about this time started buying Disco 45 magazine which was printed on newspaper quality paper very rough and it was a monthly thing and it cost five pence for each, each issue but it is the reason that I can still sing along to though not necessarily all the right words because I think these people listen to the records then scribble them down then publish but i can sing along to roxy music virginia Plain, and mop the hoop all the young dudes all the way through um, and then growing up in south end if it wasn't compulsory then it was certainly a source of local pride to love dr feelgood and the curzel flyers and, and then later on eddie and the hot Rods. you know that was that was in your essex dna uh, and then i guess as much as everyone and and you know, the reason that compilations loom large in many of our lives, the main influence on a lot of my early buying choices was cost. So a lot of my earliest purchases were either ex-chart singles or budget-price albums. And into that latter category, you can put things like Pink Floyd, Relics, which was a Music for Pleasure album yes, at the time, £1.99, yep. and Genesis Live from 1973, which again, I think, was sort of one ninety-nine when other albums were three ninety-nine or something. So onto Soul and Glam,
0: you can now put an early penchant
1: for prog rock into
0: my young but broad taste as well. I can remember my music for pleasure copy of relics. I had it on cassette. Bought it a lot um a lot later and it's interesting. We're gonna to look today at uh, specifically 1990 and at that point I think I think Cost was still a fighter to me to be yes, honest I yes. was a student you know a lot of those mid-price these, these were ways of actually amassing this kind of back catalogue of music that you'd heard on the radio and Yeah I
1: think about that time I think CBS actually started putting nice price stickers on a lot of their products so you'd sort of look through the racks and if it was Bill Withers' Greatest Hits which I remember buying with a nice price sticker on it or something along those lines you'd think you know these were probably full price albums a few years earlier they'd given up on the tv press or radio advertising and now it was the price point that was selling them
0: we are going to focus specifically on 1990 what was life like for you around about this time In 1988,
1: I had a very good civil service clerical job in central London, slap bang in the heart of London, which means that uh, I could go to gigs, theatre, I'm well paid, I could buy records. It was a great time. But in 1988, I gave it all up and went off on a round-the-world trip. And as a consequence, I have a disproportionate number of late 80s Australian seven-inch singles in my collection. But I arrived back in the UK January 1990, Uh, had to move back in home, didn't have a job to go to. So I walked into my local HMV, which was Enfield Town in North London, sadly no longer there. And that was the start of my move from being a passionate record buying gig going fan to being a a small cog in the music industry. And, and, And the joy of Literally being a child in a sweet shop for the first time in those pre internet, pre streaming days was you could read a record review in the music press or hear a snippet of something on the radio and you could go into work the next day and stand a really good chance of being able to pick the record out of the racks and play it. Record shop jobs in those days, they weren't particularly well paid, but each week nice record company reps would drop off promo records or tapes and the occasional ticket. So it was A very exciting and happy time for me. And to this day, I can instantly recall that Depeche Mode Violator was released on Monday the 19th of March, 1990, as all HMV staff were given Violator T-shirts to wear with that date emblazoned on it. And it's quite literally the only time in my life when I've had attractive young people wanting the shirt off my back. It was a wonderful
0: carefree time. It was superb. 1990, for a lot of music fans, is remembered very, very fondly. Why do you think that is?
1: There's a real rich quality of music in different genres, in different areas. And, and I, I think we'll probably come onto to this later, but that's one of the reasons that you had series like Deep Heat, which were doing so very well, and Indie Hits was doing very well. So you had Mainstream Pop, had some great stuff in it. You had Dance Pop which might usually be the collective of a completely different market. And then, you know, the enemy reading indie pop market. And yet there was, if you, you know, let's do those three as a Venn diagram and let's have mainstream pop, let's have indie pop, and let's have dance. There is a wonderful overlap in the middle between a lot of those. And it creates some really fantastic, rich, timeless music. It also helps, it was a very warm summer. The thing that looms largest in 1990 is Italia 90.
0: you're getting the hang of the tune. Good evening, welcome to Naples on a hot and sultry night for England against Cameroon. The last semi-final place is at
1: stake. It was a hugely enjoyable World Cup. You know, there's lots of moments that people look back on even now and say, yes, I can remember it. Whether they can remember it, because much like the Top of the Pots repeats, you know, it's happened so often that they've told themselves they can remember it. The other obvious Italian influence on pop culture that year is Italo House. And then it survived the, co- the controversy around who was actually seeing on Black Box right on time. <laughs> and obviously they went on to have three more hits in 1990, including The Wonderful Fantasy. And then, you know, in that same Italo House thing, you've got The 49ers uh, and Touch Me and an FBI project with their version of Going Back to My Roots. JT and The Big Family with Moments in Soul, which mixed yeah. The Art of Noise and Soul to Soul. And we've still got the ripples coming from that momentous Top of the Pops in November 89. The Stone Roses performed Fall's Gold, followed by the Happy Mondays and Kirsty McCall
0: performing Hallelujah. And then all things Manchester are gonna reach their zenith in May 1990 when the Roses play Spike Island. In some respects, you know, we could argue that 1990 started in the autumn of 1989. Dance music had actually, it was charging towards the mainstream. There was that new decade, there was that feeling of something new happening. And all of these things seem to collide and you can see it in the music industry, in the pop market. And it was it was that freshness and newness of kind of everything coming together. And even as well, um, the early creation records that were coming out, you know. Yeah, there's a couple of great early creation dance comps, isn't there as well, which unfortunately you can't
1: get anymore. But God bless him, the late, great Andrew Weverall was really, you know, coming to the fore then absolutely on a roll. I think one of the records that sums up that, that time for me is, is Bocca Juniors' Rays. Yes. Which has yes. got that beautiful house piano introduction you could probably take that 10 seconds at the beginning
0: of that that piano riff and that is absolutely the essence of 1990. There was just a kind of coming together of lots of things, you know, um, I think, and dance culture was absolutely at the centre of that. <laughs> Looking back at the um at the main album charts of nineteen ninety, it's quite an interesting eclectic selection as well. Yeah. But again, you know, we come on to now 17,
1: and you've still got the senior figures are people like Tina Turner and Phil Collins, both who had been on now the very first volume, you know, and they're still on now 17 in spring of 1990. And they're still propping up the top of the album charts as well in 1990. So yes, you've got Sinead O'Connor breaks through into the mainstream and you've got some really interesting stuff coming through. You know, as, as preparation for this, I actually started to think, can I do my top 10 albums from 1990? And the answer is I can do my top 10 albums as of this moment. One of the first cassettes I was given when I was in that HMV store was Go discs cassette and a wonderful Scottish band called The Trash Can Sinatras from Kilmarnock. Oh,
0: fantastic, who,
1: yes. Hand on Heart remain one of my favourite bands ever. And their brilliant debut album, Cake, is probably in my, you know, my all-time favourite albums. And they're still one of those bands who, every few years, they'll come and do a gig over here, and I will be there. I will absolutely be there. They Might Be Giant, Flood, which obviously has got Birdhouse in Your Soul, which is fantastic. Uh, Lightning Seeds, Release Cloud, Cuckoo Land, Charlatans, Some Friendly.
0: For me, it's not far off of being as good as the first Stone Roses album, Disgust. I was looking back at the album, number ones of the year and as we say there's a lot of what you would call those kind of traditional acts you know Mm. I mean obviously Phil Collins conquered 1919 in a lot of ways but you're looking at Fleetwood Mac Elton John The Carpenters right in in the middle of that Some Friendly sits at number one and for a a band of that stature very early in their career that's an amazing achievement but it is you're right it's a fantastic album and on an independent label as
1: well you know no major label backing behind them and it was just the strength of the music right place right time at the risk of dating this this podcast and, and here we sit at a time when Tim Burgess is about to be ennobled, or at least made the patron saint of something or other. You know, for
0: his Twitter listening parties have kept so many people happy and sane at this time. So, and what I think blessing. it just gives out such a radiance of being a fan <laughs> and actually yes. embracing music. And you know, those um, those listening parties—that's a broad genre of music he's covered. It is quite extraordinary,
1: and he is absolutely living testament
0: to the fact that there are only two types of music: everything you like and everything you don't. So we're going to start um, the campaign right now to get um, a knighthood for, for Tim Burgess?
1: Uh, I, I want to start a campaign right now to get Tim Burgess on a Back to Now podcast.
0: Oh, do you know what? Um, yes, <laughs>
1: absolutely. I'll, I'll chuck a couple of others into the mix. George Michael, Listen Without Prejudice, Volume yeah, One, fantastic. which, you know, what an album holds up. extraordinarily well. Pet Shop Boys behaviour, Being Boring as the lead single with Johnny Marr on guitar. And this is obviously just after Pet Shop Boys have collaborated with Johnny and Bernard for Electronic as well. So we've got this wonderful little melting pot there.
0: I'm going to chuck World Party Goodbye Jumbo oh, into the yes, mix Yes, yes. Well. yes, yeah, you know, that, that That was such an important album for me because, um, again, around about that age, I was really starting to hoover up as many Beatles influences as I possibly could. I can remember when, when that album was released, it just suddenly made sense. Yeah, well, if you're hoovering up Beatles influences, how about Jellyfish and Bellybutton? Michael, we we could do an entire podcast on that and Spilt Milk. I have spent the last 30 years basically just evangelising, but yeah. uh, oh, just fantastic. Slightly
1: differently, Prefab Sprout, Jordan, The Comeback. Probably, for me, a better album than Steve McQueen. Matthew Sweet, Girlfriend. Yes. Blow Monkey, Springtime for the World, when they discovered Ibiza and and went a bit dancey. Wendy and Lisa, Eroica. Absolutely. Don't try to tell me, it's just, if that had been a print single, it would have been absolutely huge. And my last one, and we'll get back on track. Mary Coughlin, Uncertain Pleasures. It reminds me of going to Wendy May's Locomotion Club at the Town and Country Club in Kentish Town. You said earlier, why was it such a good time? Because because if you can have all of these mixes of different genres and if you can have Wendy and Lisa, if you can have Mary Coughlin, if you can have Glow Monkeys all producing albums that have stood the test of time, all within a you know a few weeks or a few months of each other. That's why
0: nineteen ninety is looked back upon by the likes of me as such a fantastic year. What we're kind of exemplifying here is that it was an incredibly rich time and there was that opening up. I think people could see the opportunities. The two I'm going to throw in are Heaven or Las Vegas by by Cocteau Twins. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it was going to be on my list, but I I was an early Cocteau Twins
1: fan. This isn't a big... But I listened to John Peel, obviously, every evening and scribbled things down in my book. So for me, I always associate my favourite.
0: It's probably Treasure. Treasure, by far, is the ubiquitous Cocteau Twins album. Yeah. And I went back and had to listen to Heaven or Las Vegas again. There's something about it, yeah, it is is very polished, but just those walls of guitars and those wonderful 4AD covers – it just screams 1990. Uh, and th- does this bring us back to make up your own
1: lyrics as well? Because, you know, you can sing what you like to a Cocteau Twins album because no one's
0: going to tell you you're wrong. I think by Heaven or Las Vegas, there were almost some recognisable words starting to come through to yes. this, Fraser. Where, what was she thinking? Not to slight the town of Grangemouth. It certainly isn't the most romantic of places and how it can inspire that type of music is incredible. Well, let's say, compare and contrast oil refinery towns then
1: because... Obviously, I started off my conversation with Dr. Feelgood from the oil refinery of Canvey
0: Island, so you can chuck in Cocteau, Twins and Grangebuff, So Yeah, and there is a fantastic compare and contrast it. Absolutely. it. There you go. The other one that I would throw in is World Clique by Delight.
1: Yes, it is. And do you know what? If you said to me, what's my single of the year? Then it's probably going to be yeah. Groovers in the Heart. There's probably albums of that crossover. Things like um, Dream Warriors yes. is probably a bigger album for me in that dance style from that particular year. But yeah, you know, Groove is in the heart. Come on, y- you've got to have two lead feet to not want to get up and dance for that.
0: 1990 is the first full year anyway of the compilation chart as a, as yes. a separate entity.
1: You know, and we all know what happened. No one else had a look in of getting a number one album with Now Coming Along. But it also means that at the bottom end of the compilation chart, you know, someone can turn around and say, yeah, I had a top 20 album with this compilation so a top twenty compilation might be you know, number one hundred in the combined chart, but it means when we're looking through the comps chart in isolation, you do get some very interesting little things creeping in there, and particularly for the independent labels who couldn't compete in the artist market.
0: Techno, Guru Josh, and Snap, and more. Deep Heat Six, the hottest dance album around from Telstar. I had actually forgotten how successful the Deep Heat series was. From working behind a counter in 1990,
1: we probably sold more copies on those long-form letterbox two cassette editions than you did on vinyl or on CD. And, you know, living in the home counties, everyone who bought it had either um, a Golf GTI or a a Ford Escort, and they went straight out of the shop and chucked the shrimp rack and the bag away, and they went straight into the cassette deck of their their Volkswagen Golf GTI, and they turned it up as loud as they possibly could, and it stayed there until the next volume came out. 17 with Adamski, the chart-topping single from the number 1 album. Now 17. Step on it. So now 17 lots of uh one appearance wonders on Now 17, which always makes for an interesting compilation. I estimate there's about 16 acts on Now17 that never appeared on another numbered volume. And that excludes featured artists like Lindy Layton and MC Eric. And on the subject of MC Eric Martin, a Welsh rapper who collaborated with Technotronic from Belgium and also from Belgium's contribution, don't miss the party line from Business and the two guys behind Business are going to be responsible for Two Unlimited um, in a couple of years' time. So we hold them responsible for eight appearances between now 20 and now 30. Two Unlimited had. It's almost a World Cup of, of pop here. We can't We've got Germany coming up next. Yeah. Germany's I mean, this contribution is Jamtronic and their dance version of Another Day in Paradise. And do you know what? This podcast is, is going to be on record. But so I'm going to go on record and Jamtronic, Another Day in Paradise is dreadful.
0: I was wondering um, which way you were going to go there michael i really was for a second you had me hanging uh, i love actually on the on the sleeve notes it actually describes jamtronic's version as the house pop version of phil collins
1: because you can't dance to it you know you think what you like about phil collins but they do him an absolute
0: disservice here it's dreadful that's side three or sorry record two side one give it its full title technotronic featuring mc eric i'm still getting over the welsh connection fantastic yep. lonnie gordon yeah 49ers yeah See if you can spot the odd ones out as we go along here. Jimmy yep. Somerville, yep. Cliff Richard. I think at this point we'd like to bring Mr Peter Selby back into
1: the room because this is an Alan Taney production and, and, and if Pete were with us now, he'd be waxing lyrical about Alan Taney's underappreciated contribution to pop music. This is actually Cliff's last appearance on a Numbered Now album. But do you know what? He has the last number one single of the year. It's his 100th top 40 hit. Do you think he's worried? If, if he's there between Jamtronic and Jimmy Somerville, then he can live with it. God bless him.
0: There's a wonderful finish to that side, though, where you've got Moments in Soul by JT and the Big Family and Mantronics and featuring Wondrous, got to have your love. They are, they are two time capsules for 1990,
1: aren't they? Yeah, very much so. Particularly JT and the Big Family because it is... House. they are taking soul to soul they are taking art of noise both of whom in their own right pretty, if, if not in yeah no influential is probably the right word i mean certainly i think that was the year that art of noise bought out their ambient album which i still love uh, and obviously soul to soul were absolutely huge at this time as well I sort of admire JT and the big family for taking these two slightly disparate elements and marrying them together. There's a paraphrase from The Mighty Boosh, taking elements of the future and elements of the past, combining them to make something not as good as either. Yeah, there's, there's a bit of moments in soul about that, but I do have admiration for the way they've married those two together.
0: Looking back at now 17, first of all, you can see again an opportunity to try and embrace the 90s very, very early on.
1: And maybe it says something about where the market was, but there's there's only two number one singles on now 17, um, Beats International and Adamski, but that's two more than now 16 had, which was the first volume to have zero chart toppers on it. Um, I, abs- actually, I'll, uh, at this point, I'll digress slightly, and I'm going to confess my love of Beats International, uh, yes. and I'm on a crusade to get their two albums reissued. I get the appeal of Be Good to Me; it's clever. You've got the Clash bass line in there. But originals like Won't Talk About It and Four Spacious Lies are are absolutely fantastic. And from the second album, their cover of In the Ghetto, which samples Julie Cruz, is just superb. Absolutely superb. Seal's making his first appearance on here. Uncredited. And just coming back to Cliff, worth remembering, he's also on Band-Aid 2, not on here. So he starts the year appearing on the very first number one single, of 1990, as well as having the very last number one single of 1990.
0: So so Cliff is our our booking for 1990. I think though, um, Cliff's management were working incredibly well throughout this period, because if you consider now 15, 16, 17, you wouldn't normally associate Cliff Richard with that kind of period, you know, we're you know, talking about indie and dance and the whole explosion, but he's well represented across those now albums.
1: Yeah, and you know, and we touched earlier on how the pop market becomes a lot, I don't know, purer or more predictable for once, for a better phrase, because artists who were seen as easy listening are no longer allowed to encroach. And it's almost like, Oh, apart from Cliff, you know, it's it's the terms and conditions might, can apply. Cliff Richard is allowed to appear in the charts at, at any given time, you know. This definitely is a fantastic snapshot of 1990. The, the second album, it's got that typical formatting, hasn't it, of pop and indie on the first half and then the dance stuff on the second half. And in that second half, we get D-Mob and Put Your Hands Together. It samples an old OJ's single called put our heads together so you've got uh, kenny gamble and leon huff get a writing credit on now 17 and and again when i was digging into the small print on this album everything starts with an e and if ever there was a, a 1990 track it's easy posse and everything starts with an e samples the old black and white robinson crusoe tv series but there is no credit there as far as i can see for um the people who wrote the music for robinson crusoe that's a very, very good spot. Um, any lawyers listening? I want a cut of your fee. Thank you very much. With yes. apologies to, to, to Jeremy Healy and uh, Boy George
0: trade, uh, trading as Angela Dust. If, you, if you'd asked if you asked if any member of Hazy Fantasy would make it to now album, you, you probably wouldn't have said yes. But Do you want to know what the other um, Hazy Fantasy
1: connection is on this album? Yes. Good, I'm glad you said <laughs> that. <laughs> Otherwise, we were going nowhere. Um <laughs> tongue-in-cheek and their top 40 debut tomorrow which is on here cover photograph by Kate Garner of Hazy Fantasy so by this time Kate was um, a huge in demand photographer she did I think she might
0: have done the sleeve of the Sinead O'Connor album um, as well and we'll just do a, a, a quick mention for final final song on side four Sydney Youngblood I'd Rather Go Blind
1: this is a man who's Chart debut was absolutely fantastic. You know, he he produces a single that's up there with with Roachford Cuddly Toy, as far as I'm concerned. And then we get this. No. And and honestly, it it makes my heart sink that a man with so much
0: talent, it, it's got the feel of will this do about it? If only I could was such a great calling card yeah. to begin the account. Here we are from the from the dizzy heights of side one on no 16,
1: you know obviously we, we need to add um, our friends in Jamtronic to that they won't be returning our phone call list spoiler alert I've got a couple more to come as well <laughs> well if, if we move on to um, track listing you know and we touched on the fact that it's got this formulaic all things pop on the first half and, and all things vaguely dance on the second it finishes with I would rather go blind because normally that's where the, the Robson and Jerome or the Righteous Brothers reissue slot would go but there wasn't the big old ballad to go there and there wasn't the novelty song in the middle of the pop side we've got the elder states persons we referred to um, earlier tina turner and phil collins they're sandwiched by candy flip and the happy mondays yeah. you know, and you just think this is yeah this is an interesting one so Tina and Phil both appeared on volume one and have both been on 14 numbered volumes to date. So, you know, they go hand in hand. They're inseparable. Next time one or the other appears on, on a now, they've both got
0: to be there. And of course, an honourable mention, we've got Eric Clapton in there as well on the Phil Cross yes. track. Yeah, yeah, Clapo. yeah. Not, um, not, not someone who's graced many now albums, to my, to my knowledge.
1: No, um, he's on a charity single, isn't he, later on? Is he on Love Can Build a Bridge? Love Can Build a Bridge. On, yeah. Uh, yep, that's
0: right. But, um, uh,
1: but yeah, apart from that, I mean, I don't know whether he's one of the artists who doesn't believe in compilations and thinks they dilute his sales or whether
0: the people at Mail just found him too dull. Put him on the list, not going to return our phone calls. One of the things I always remember about Now 17 in particular was promotion of Erasure to Side 1 Track 1.
1: It was their moment, but they've obviously at this point crossed over into the mainstream. And they're obviously, you know, if not national treasures, then they're certainly considered a very broad, very likeable. You you wonder, did Radio 2 start playing at this point? And, And again, for the benefit of younger listeners, all of the stuff that's on now at this time is very Radio 1. Radio 2 would have been playing Goodbye to Love by the Carpenters on rotation at this point. But you, you do wonder whether it was around about this time that Radio 2 thought, do you know what? That erasure, that's a jolly nice pop hit. Yeah. So, it, you know, did it actually cross from Radio 1 to Radio 2, which is often the moment, isn't it? When when you cover two stations and two playlists, um, that's the moment you've arrived. Radio one.
0: At this point of the evening, we welcome listeners on FM who've just joined us. Radio 2 Wild album for me certainly was the coming together of everything Erasure had been working towards and it was such a rich, flowing, hit-filled album. Good pop
1: is good pop and, you know, yeah, Blue Savannah's got all the right hooks in all the right places. I'll park it for a moment
0: but I've got another Erasure comment coming up in a minute. So Oh, good. I look forward <laughs> to it. I look forward to it. This album was released 23rd of April yep. 1990. A good high percentage of these tracks were either current or were yep. just about to be released, which I think helps because it makes the album really sail into the summer quite well.
1: But at the same time, there's an interesting gap between Now 16 and 17 and, and, and a few tracks that fall between the cracks. Yeah. So they came too late to be on Now 16, but they were probably out of the top 40 by the time this came around. Electronic is a perfectly good example of that. Yes. You know, why Why wasn't electronic on this album?
0: You, you can take the choir boys and, and bin them, as far as I'm concerned, if you can squeeze electronic on there. If we take out Faith No More, we'll take out the choir boys and we put in Getting Away With It and Fool's Gold, and suddenly you've got quite a run.
1: <laughs> you have.
0: Obviously, um, Stone
1: Roses never appeared on any numbered now, and I imagine by January 1990, they're knee deep in legal wrangles as well. So a lot of uh, the missing tra- obvious missing tracks are down to the warner's cbs rivalry i think so now 17 is missing the first three number ones of 1990 band-aid two do they know it's christmas which comes as no surprise so then you have new kids on the block with hanging tough they're a cbs artist so if they're going to be on a comp they're going to be on on a hits album Um, more pertinent we're missing kylie and tears on my pillow This is a curious one, given that they're on PWL, so not necessarily affiliated to one of the major labels. I Should Be So Lucky had been on Now 11, and and later in 1990, she's going to come back on Now 18 with the brilliant step back in time. Yeah. In between those, we miss out nine consecutive top five Kylie singles, including, especially for you and Hand On Your Heart, two number ones. Someone at PWL is no longer
0: returning the phone calls of someone at Now do you think that's because PWL, they had quite a successful run of, the, of their own hit factory at compilation albums, didn't they?
1: Yeah, and you know what that probably is, but I think some of these hits you know, were big enough. Someone who bought a PWL album isn't necessarily also going to buy a Now album. No, no, that's really Certainly true. the other way around, and I think they could have got away with putting him on both. Um, and then you come to, what, March, April, and the fourth number one of 1990 is Sinead O'Connor. Nothing compares to you. It comes along later on Now 18, so I'm gonna guess that Chrysalis decide to hold back until after the sales of her album. So yeah, you know, they, I think they're the obvious missing tracks, and and yes, we've already touched on electronic and how, how we'd all love to have the Stone Roses on there, but
0: yeah, not having four number ones in a row, very unusual for a Now album. It's of interest, to look at the Now release schedule for 1990, because there was obviously a different plan of action happening. We only see two Now-numbered albums.
1: I wonder whether Now's plan at this point was driven in part by the World Cup. It's a commonly held opinion in the music market that you don't bother to put out a big album when the World Cup's on, because people only go grocery shopping. They don't go into record shops. They're less inclined to buy music. Now, obviously, in the day and age of streaming, that's changed. And it changed in the last couple of decades when supermarkets started stocking music as well. So, But at this time, you thought there's a World Cup on. It was a lovely hot summer. They probably thought, really, you know, are we going to put out another album? And it's also
0: telling that there wasn't a hits album in the summer either, was there? It depends what you want to call it. Snap it up to... Yeah, but doesn't that come later? Doesn't that come uh, yeah. the, it's thirtieth of July, so it is later yeah, on. Yeah.
1: And actually there's a big gap between that and Monster Hits Volume One, which was actually yeah. tail end of eighty nine. So yeah, essentially there isn't a hits album in the first half of nineteen ninety. So it does rather seem that everyone's avoiding
0: putting their big players out into this market. But I also wonder if that's got something to do with the explosion of the Dance album. This is jam, jam hot. Now jam. Dance. 20 12-inch mixes, Technotronic, Beats International, and more. Now Dance, it's kicking.
1: Yes, and you mentioned Now's strategy earlier. And obviously, in this year, we get Now Dance 901, Now Dance 902, and Now Dance 903. There's some interesting crossover as well. So you get the same artists with different versions of the same track appearing on Now 17 and 18 or on Now Dance. Some of the big dance hits, Adventures of Stevie V, Beats International, D-Mob, Easy Posse, uh, Mantronics, Technotronic, all on you know the numbered volumes and on the dance volumes. So again, hats off to the team now, because they obviously knew what they were doing. And they obviously looked at success of, of Deep Heat and said, yeah, we... we We should be doing this as
0: well. You know, we've got this strong brand. Let's do it. And it's when you take a look across the compilation album chart of 1990, dance features so heavily. And and you've got almost that kind of tag teaming between the now dance albums and the now numbered albums. You've got those deep heat albums. I think three of them, number one, five in total released.
1: If you add... Um, so January starts, the first two weeks in January, now 16 is still at the top of the album charts or the compounding charts. Then across volumes 17 and 18, you've got 10 weeks. Now dance 901, 2 and 3 is another nine weeks. So across the 52 weeks of the year, now are 21 weeks at number one. Yeah. And then what would we, we would expect to be the big hitter, uh, the big challenger, which is hits, nothing. The three volumes of Deep Heat, and uh, you'll recall they always had those lovely little subtitles so yes. volume five was Feed the Fever and volume six is The Sixth Sense and volume seven is The Seventh Heaven and then at the end of the year they bring out Deep Peak 90 as a summary of the year as well and then you can chuck in things like Smash Hits Rave which again testifies to how much dance and pop were crossing over at this time. A&M now part of Universal put out an album called Slammin'. Yes. With a four player on the front and, yes. and again it's, it's a dance pop crossover thing that's the one that's going to get my vote because that's the one that's got Dream Warriors on it and it's got a tri Quest on it and it's got Boca
0: Juniors on it and it's, it's fantastic that album though in some respects leads the way for what 1991 kind of becomes in the compilation market out with now EMI initially then EMI Virgin released two albums Awesome and Awesome 2 yes now was very much seen as a brand leader but in some respects A&M were leading the way there and now we're kind of following.
1: It's interesting isn't it because they either had very clever people in-house or they had some good consultants working for them.
0: 1990 is one of those years as well where there's quite a few one-off compilation albums that stand out from the rest of the players. There's a few that pop up and I guess this is one of the joys of separating out The comps chart
1: from the artist chart is you do get to spot these little things. As I mentioned before I'm working in stores and at the tail end of 1990 the expectation was you're going to be playing now 18 and now Christmas on an endless loop that's all customers want to hear uh, that's what gets the money out of their pocket yet chrysalis at this point give us Red Hot and Blue uh, which is an album of Cole Porter covers and it was issued to raise funds for AIDS research it is the proverbial curate's egg not all of it works but you've got artists like Naina Cherry you've got Sinead O'Connor who obviously was a chrysalis artist a really good contribution from Fine Young Cannibals David Byrne the lowercase KD Lang and, and here they are again our old friends around Asia. There's an awful lot on there to enjoy. And whilst, as a title, Red Hot and Blue is one off, it does spawn a few Red Hot and Blue themed albums. Two years later, we get Red Hot and Dance where George Michael gives away three tracks that may have turned up on Listen Without Prejudice Volume 2, including the sublime Too Funky. I mean, who gives away a single like Too Funky and just says, there you go,
0: you can have that for your charity album. Wow, what a man, you know, what what an extraordinary talent. But I can remember the vivid excitement about Red Hot and Dance when it came out. You're right, they were probably the genesis of Listen Without Prejudice 2, and if if, <laughs> if George hadn't fallen out so badly with Sony, we probably would have had quite an amazing album. I'll, I'll Confess now, I'm
1: not the biggest fan of U2. They're one of those bands who I admire rather than like. At the same time, every now and again, they come up with a little pop gem. And actually, their version of Night and Day on
0: Red Hot and Blue is not bad at all, at the risk of damning them with faint praise. For me, that actually was one of the standout tracks on that album. I can absolutely hear Actong Baby coming through that song.
1: It's their first dabbling with Electronica almost, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, actually, do you know what? They did have their finger on the pulse here. They've done it very well. One of the things you can say about U2 is they do work with very good people, be it Eno or Flood or whoever. Yeah, yeah. Um,
0: they know who to work with. Another interesting one-off compilation album was the Network album.
1: Yeah, and now this is a, a charity album in aid of the Silver Cleft charity, which I think these days is Nordorf Robbins Music Therapy. Uh, if any of your listeners get the chance to check out Nordorf Robbins' website, they are fantastic people. They do brilliant work. Here we are in 1990, and they've staged this extraordinary concert. You know, it's to get that line-up together. Quo, Cliff Richard, Robert Plant, Genesis, Phil Collins, Tears for Fears, McCartney, and, and to end an album with Pink Floyd, you know. Get, getting all these people on the same CD is is an extraordinary feat. I can understand if you were seeing this TV advertised and someone said, look at this beautifully packaged collection of mature pop artists and it's all in a good cause. And for those of you who've got this new format called CD, it's going to sound great. It's just one of those ones you look at and you understand why this worked in 1990. And curiously, that falls into the same bracket, Classic Experience Volume 2, was a number one album in 1990. Yes. The first Classic Experience had come out two years earlier. Classic Experience Volume 2 has Ness and Dormer on it. That's their hit single. That's the sound bed for the advert. That's the one that everyone's going to go, it's the song from the World Cup. No one who bought Deep Heat bought Classic Experience 2 or worth the album, that's for sure. But there is undoubtedly a place for all of these titles in the
0: great comps market of 1990. There's a thread that links the Nebworth concert to Italia 90 to Nessun Dorma to step on by the Happy Mondays these things all create that tapestry of what 1990 was
1: yeah there's a very positive mood running through all of them isn't there euphoria is probably a good yeah. word. there's there's a euphoria that surrounds this Nebworth concert there's certainly a euphoria that surrounds the World Cup and perhaps for some of these Happy Monday fans there's a different type of chemically induced euphoria as well but it's the same result whichever way you look at it <music> Yeah. Indie is crossing over to the mainstream. That these indie top 20 series from Beachwood serve a purpose because they're more of the sort of nighttime Radio 1 kind of market. My beautiful green copy of Volume 8 came out at the end of March 1990, and it's got a guy called Gerald Hot Lemonade. It's got the Fatima Mansions Only Losers Take the Bus. It's got the glorious Field Nice in If You Need Someone. And if that isn't a template for most of San Etienne's career, I don't know what is Bob. <laughs> And I can't believe it wasn't a huge hit, Kylie Said to Jason by the KLF. Ah, oh, it's fabulous. For me, that's that's the lost KLF classic. Why that
0: wasn't an enormous hit, I will never understand. We've already got one campaign underway, which is the Get Tim Burgess Knighted campaign. Yes. Can we also just start here, the let's get the KLF back into the public domain? Yes, I think so. I don't know also, how. <laughs> If you're listening, Bill Drummond, if you're listening, and I know you are, Bill.
1: I I think we're going to struggle with Kylie said to Jason. Well, maybe not, because obviously Kylie and Jason are still relevant, uh, but the lyrics have got uh, references to things like um, Some Mothers Do Have 'em and The Archie Bunker Show, which is going to mean... Even less
0: now than it did in 1990. The Indie Top 20 series was, in some ways, a fantastic overlap. There's a whole conversation around the early 90s indie scene before it became branded, because it's such a rich vein of opportunity. There was really no limit to what you could put out. I'm looking here at volume 10 of the Beechwood series, and you know, you've got in there again. You've got the Mock Turtles, Lay Me Down. You know, everyone remembers. Can you dig it? Uh, Renegade Soundwave. Spiritualized are on their Carter's version of the Pet Shop Boys Rent which... yes well
1: I think what's interesting but obviously it's just a collection of supposedly just a collection of music from independent labels which might have otherwise fallen down the cracks in a band like Wire you have a post-punk band and in a band like Depeche Mode you have someone who came up through new romantic synth pop and yet all of these things fit together really nicely
0: on this new emerging indie as a genre kind of thing I think you know we talked earlier about the track list on now 17 and that would absolutely have been your radio one staples for yes. that time. Now you look at an indie top twenty, and this was late night radio. One, this this was the the territory of John Peel, of Andy Kershaw. But nowadays, this would be a six music daytime playlist.
1: Oh, absolutely, yeah. You know, on my volume eight here, I've got Inspiral Carpets and I've got James and I've got Pale Saints. So yeah, you know, yeah, it's you know, if I turn on six music now, I'm going to throw a stone and hit one of those. On I If imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, then let's go back to our old friends at Telstar and mention product 2378 after the catalogue number, which obviously is a is a homage to, to Factory Records. It's a curious thing. So here's Telstar, who do Deep Heat and all of these mainstream labels, but they've done this indie album. The front cover has a picture of an electric kettle. In 1990, someone sitting down to watch Brookside, and up on the, on the screen in the, in the midpoint break comes now available product 2378. And the sound bit is going to be the Jesus and Mary Chain, New Model Army and Crazy Head. And you think, oh, it, it, it's almost subversive. It's quite wonderful. There's a three in a row that starts the B-side of the first LP. Yeah. Happy Monday, Step On, followed by Primal Scream Loaded, followed by Depeche Mode, Enjoy the Silence. That's a a brilliant snapshot of 1990. And I'm going to throw this out there. I think there's a good argument, potentially the best
0: singles that each of those acts made discuss. There will be plenty of people across social media who will be more than happy to pick up that. Oh, good, gauntlet. good.
1: Let, you know, let's have a healthy debate. In the special mention category, can I throw Electride 101 and talking with myself? Billy Ray Martin's voice is absolutely gorgeous. And she made some
0: wonderful records, some good solo stuff, but she never really got the hit she deserved. Preparing for this podcast, I went back and I had a good listen back to the album. And I have to put my hands up and say, that's a song I'd forgotten about. And it is such a strong track. Its positioning on that album actually doesn't do it justice. Um,
1: And speaking of fantastic voices, uh, Jimmy Somerville, Read My Lips, is on Now17. And Jimmy, obviously, um, uh, an extraordinary talent. But backing vocals, we've got the late and undoubtedly great Claudia Fontaine. Now, Claudia um, was a member of Aphrodisiac trio, which featured her with Karen Wheeler of Soul to Soul and Naomi Thompson. And uh, there's the cliche, they could sing the phone book and it would sound fantastic. That definitely applies to Claudia Fontaine. For listeners who don't know, with Aphrodisiac, they are the three voices you hear on Nelson Mandela by the special AKA. They are the people who make Every day I write the book Player was Costello be so much more than just a, a good pop single into a great pop single. What an extraordinary talent she was. When I was looking through this, I was pondering what I was going to say about Candy Flip. In my memory, the follow up, This Can Be Real, was a far superior single. So I watched the video again and it hasn't aged very well. They are the Poundland beloved. <laughs> they just weren't very good however Danny Spencer from Candy Flip went on to be a remixer under the name Sure is Pure and had if you stick him into Discogs he's got a lot of very good credits in there so he probably doesn't give a flying one so Mr Flip Mr
0: Spencer hats off to you sir I'm trying to think I think they did some great work on the Sister Sledge tracks in they the did 90s. yes Lost in yeah.
1: Music Sure is Pure mix is fantastic I think the Sure is Pure mix is the one that features Duran Duran on backing vocals on the subject of trivia. So as is often the case with now, the credits on the sleeve don't necessarily match the original singles. You know, they might edit it for the the purposes of space. So there's no room for the wild pair and MC Scat Caps. They don't get their dues on Paula Abdul. Opposites attract. And as we touched on earlier, Seal doesn't get a credit on Adamski's Killer even though he co-wrote it. The yin to that yang is MC Kinky gets a credit for Easy Posse, Everything Starts with an E. MC Kinky, a.k.a. Karen Geary. And this is karma because she She doesn't get a mention on Now 22. When she does the rap on Erasure's take a chance on me. So MC Kinky, you're in the um, well done, hats doffed corner. Now 17 as a a time capsule of Spring Summer 90. I'm going to argue that it's not great, although I think there is such a wealth of material to choose from in the first half of 1990. You know, we mentioned earlier that they probably could have done Right, let's throw the challenge out. Listeners to Back to Now podcast, we challenge you to compile Now 17, part two, the one that comes between Now 17 and Now 18, because there is so much missing, because there was so much good material around in 1990. You know, we know you don't get Band Aid and New Kids and Kylie. We never get the power from Snap. We know we're not going to get Madonna Vogue and we don't get England New Order World in Motion, you know. So I'm not convinced that it is the best snapshot of Spring Summer
0: 1990, but then unless it was going to be a four album set what would be but that is again what makes the now albums so interesting to revisit there's those three tracks at the beginning of record one side two step on loaded and enjoy the silence which absolutely would be in anybody's top lists of 1990 songs however there are a good number of tracks on here that wouldn't be again in a year when there's two now numbered albums there's always going to be a gap I actually think as well an interesting challenge is to go back and look at the three Now Dance albums of 1990 and pull out which of those tracks would be on that Now 17 and a half. Mm, That's an interesting one. You've mentioned World in Motion, for example. You're going to throw Betty Boo doing the do at me, aren't you? I don't know if I'm... maybe. (laughs) (laughs) I like the Now Dance albums, I really do. But as seven-inch versions across those three albums you could actually have a pretty strong in-between now album.
1: You could. Um, Chad Jackson, hit a Drummer Get yeah. Wicked, which obviously was a ubiquitous 1990 uh, song. Yeah, should have been on one of their... There's a few. Dusty Springfield, In Private. You know, obviously a Pet Shop Boys um, writing production. Perhaps that should have been on there. Yeah, there's you've got a very good point there. Kim Mazel. Yeah, I'm scrolling through now, and it's, it's a strong challenge you've put out there.
0: Right. There's only a few years in Now's history where there are two numbered albums and obviously the dance project worked considerably well but it's interesting because 1991 only has two numbers as well you've only got 19 and 20 so you can understand why come 1992 the sequence that we now recognise of three albums a year happens
1: Yes although I would argue in the last three or four years there's probably a case for reverting back to two not least because singles hang around in the charts for so much longer Um, and we all know that's driven by streaming but if the chart's not churning over so often then do we really need three volumes of now. Um, and I'd imagine the the finance department of uh, Universal Sony says, yes, it's in our forecast, so
0: carry yeah, on doing it. But from, a, from an aesthetic point of view, there's an interesting case for that. I'm actually now going to spend the rest of the evening compiling the rest of now 17 and a half, I think. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, we should we
1: should make mention of now 18, and it does reinforce the fact that it is a very good year we're working with. You got the Pet Shop Boys so hard. Uh, yeah. We do finally get Sinead O'Connor, nothing compares to you. DNA featuring Suzanne Vega Tom's Diner DNA features Nicholas Batt son of Mike Batt as one of its members who went on to work with Goldfrapp. Elton John's Sacrifice which Pop Quiz fans are going to know is his first solo number one you also have to put up with Status Quo Anniversary Waltz God bless them and you get Technotronic Mega Mix you know which really no one asked for oh and, uh, and obviously we do finish off with The Righteous Brothers Unchained Melody which isn't that the best selling
0: single of 1990 no E. T. For me, though, is an interesting kickback to I think what now 17 was because you know, we talked about the growing up of rock culture, and certainly if you look at the album tra- eh, sorry, the album charts of 1990 there's a lot of those traditional acts. You look at Record One Side One, Beautiful South, Steve Miller, Elton John, Rock Set, Phil Collins, Wilson Phillips, Sinead O'Connor, Righteous Brothers. It's a very traditional set of songs. There's less of the indie dance feel. Well, do great. you know
1: what you you would look at this and you'd come to the conclusion that after Spike Island Indie dance crossover was banned uh, <laughs> because the, the indie sector is is represented by The Cure, The Lars, and that's pretty much it. But yeah. yeah, you know, it's it's gone. Indie dance crossover has gone. Come now, 18. We've still got. I'm pleased to say, you know, we've got basematic. Um, and we've got these banging dance tunes still. Tina Turner's back, Phil Collins is back. It has a a safe end-of-year feel to it. Which, again, reinforces our need for Now 17 Part 2 listeners. Off you go. (laughs) My summary is is very short and sharp and to the point. The first half of 1990, uh, I am a new career in a new town, to quote David Bowie, and it's a hugely exciting time for me. The music just got better and better because you know we talk about those albums that come in the second half of the year shop boys george michael etc etc prefab sprout jellyfish the music gets better and better throughout 1990 there's some fantastic stuff there so a wonderful wonderful
0: year and i commend it to the house michael thank you so much my pleasure thank you very much ian was a look at Now17 and how 1990 signalled a new decade for music in so many ways. Thanks once again to Michael, and further compilation adventures continue on Twitter with myself Ian at PopRambler. I look forward to sharing more musical memories again soon here on the Back to Now podcast. Until then, take care and goodbye.